financial metrics, negative interest rates, and forecasting. Welcome to Industry Focus. Welcome to Industry Focus Financials Edition. This is Gabby LaPera. Uh, joining me in on the phone is Jordan Wathen. Today is March 7th, 2016, and I am very excited today. We have a three-part show. Um, normally, we, we kind of like pick one topic, but I, I think I kind of missed the, the old format where we, where we covered a plethora of topics. Um, today, we're going to start with a couple metrics, which is book value per share and return on equity. We had a reader uh, write in. I guess he would be a listener, wouldn't he? We had a listener write in named Lucas Kofi. Thank you very much for the get well email I got last week, Lucas. And he wanted us to talk about different metrics. So I figured we'd cover one or two a week until we got through his entire list. And this week, we are going to start with book value per share and return on equity. Um, Jordan, do you want to go ahead and start talking about book value per share? Sure. So when you think about book value, book value is essentially shareholders' equity. And you get to shareholders' equity by looking at the balance sheet and you look at assets and then you subtract the liabilities from the assets to get to shareholders' equity. And then from there, of course, you divide shareholders' equity by the number of shares to get your book value per share. And this is a really valuable thing to understand essentially what shareholders own of a company once all the liabilities, the bondholders, the people who have given you inventories, for example, on credit, once they're paid off, what do shareholders have left over for them? And so, so understanding that value on a per share basis can really help you understand the value that underlies uh, an individual share that you might own. So if you own 100 shares, then you can know what the book value per share is, know the basically the net value of those shares on for an accounting purposes. So I have a, I have a question for you. What about intangible book value? So intangible book value, especially this financial show, so with banks, it's an important one. Intangible book value, especially for banks, is usually goodwill. So it's something, it's the value that exceeds the tangible value of assets from an acquisition. So if a bank buys another bank, they're not just going to pay one times equity. They'll usually they'll pay something maybe one and a half times equity. And the extra half times equity has to be applied to an asset after an acquisition. And usually that's subscribed to goodwill, which is basically the value of customer relationships, the value of the brand, things that necessarily couldn't be sold if you had to s- sell them. So Right, it's I was not thinking, a printer. It's like a it's like a, it's right, more right. feeling. Right. It's something that doesn't really exist, but it does. Mm-hmm. It's hard to explain, you know. Yeah, so, absolutely. But I mean it still factors into book value per share. So it's just something that you kind of want to keep in mind. You could, of course, do tangible book value per share, and tangible, of course, means things you can touch. So it's literally the assets that the company has, excluding any sort of goodwill that might be factored into the books. Right. So like when people look at banks, they usually like to look at tangible book value because it gives you a very good understanding of what the actual real liquidation value of a bank is. And also, when you're measuring return on equity, which we're going to get to, if you measure return on tangible equity, that's kind of like a measure of how fast a bank could grow organically instead of acquisitively. Okay, I mean, you kind of teed yourself up there. Do you want to talk about return on equity now? (laughs) So return on equity, once you've calculated book value, so you take your assets, you subtract liabilities, now you have your book value. Return on equity is you take the company's net income and then you divide it by the book value. So if a company makes $100 million on a book value of $1 billion, the return on equity for this company would be 10%. Okay. 
Okay. That's a very simple, straightforward definition. Thank you very much. Um, if anyone has any questions about how any of these work, feel free to w- write in. I think we should just move right along to the next segment of our show, which is a segment that I'm pretty excited to, to talk about. Um, we had a listener, another listener, write in and ask about negative interest rates, which actually coincides with some articles that I've been editing. So negative interest rates, what are they? Negative interest rates is probably the scariest thing in the world, right? So <laughs> imagine the idea that you give someone, you loan someone money under the premise that they're going to pay you back less in the future. So let's say, Gabby, that you're such a good credit and I'm so worried about the global economy that I'm going to loan you $10,000 under the premise that you're going to pay me, say, $9,500 back in the future. Yeah. And, and the idea is that I will definitely pay you back. But you're, you're right. This is something that's never been seen before in financial history. Up until a couple of decades ago, this whole concept was theoretical. Right. And it's still kind of theoretical. If you go to the curriculum for the char- to become a char- chartered financial analyst, the curriculum basically says, oh, negative interest rates can't happen, so don't worry about it. And this is a designation that's super highly respected on Wall Street. Probably 50% of bond fund managers out there have one. And they've all stayed under this premise that negative interest rates simply don't happen. It's something that's just theoretical. It's an idea. And now, of course, it's reality in a lot of places around the world. Well, as of right now, three major economies have negative interest rates, which are Japan, Switzerland, and Sweden. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a, you're right. It's a reality now. Um, and I think, so part of the reason people thought that, that negative interest rates were completely theoretical is because, say you have your money in a bank, and you know you get like that little tiny interest interest uh, portion back every month, right? Right now you do. Right now it's super right. low, but um, when you have negative interest rates, you actually have to pay the bank to hold on to your money. And so everyone thought negative interest rates will never happen because people will just withdraw their money from the bank and leave. Right. Exactly. And there's a lot of talk now, especially around the world, is. People are talking about they need to print more big dollar denomination banknotes because people are just sitting on them. Because when your option is to go loan money to the German government for 10 years and get less back, it's preferable just to keep the cash, you know, hidden underneath the mattress. And luckily, luckily so far, at least as far as I can tell and that I've seen, maybe someone out there can prove me wrong, but this hasn't yet affected individuals. So banks in Europe are still paying like, you know, one basis point, so 0.01% on your money. Uh, but for institutions, it's certainly a problem because they have so much, you know, there's so much capital that they can't just go put it in a storage shed, right? And they're international organizations, right? So they need to be able to keep their money in a place where other people, where they can access it easily and send it across the, the world easily. Right, right, exactly. So, so, mm-hmm. so if you look, I, I found a Bloomberg <laughs> reported actually that $7 trillion of government debt around the world is actually currently yielding an interest rate of less than zero. So investors are willing to lose money on $7 trillion of capital, essentially, to have a safe place to store it. Yeah. So not only is it just having a safe place to store it, but some people are saying that part of the reason people aren't moving it is just it's convenient to have it in the bank as opposed to underneath your mattress. Right, right. So that's one of the things. And it's kind of weird. As we think about it as individuals, you wonder, why would anyone ever go out and buy a bond that pays a negative interest rate, right? It's just like so asinine to even think about that you might (laughs) give someone the opportunity to use your money for a short amount of time and get less back. But 
one of the things you have to understand is there's actually a way to make money from this, right? So you could buy a bond at a negative 1% interest rate and sell it at a negative 2% yield and actually make money because the bond will go up in value, right? The basic premise oh. behind bonds is if interest rates go down further, the bond value goes up. That makes a lot of sense. I hadn't actually even thought about it that far. I was just like, let's right. talk about negative interest rates. Um, that no, is really it's kind of speculative, you know? So, like, obviously... You're still taking that risk that interest rates don't go lower and you end up losing money, right? right? So you end up getting paid off and you've accepted that negative yield. You know what would be really interesting is if that negative interest rates uh, stayed low for long enough and then they continued to become more negative. I think that it would have to change like payment structures, wouldn't it? People would have to, they'd, they'd say you can't pay up front, you have to wait 60 days to pay. Right. Yeah. No, it's that's that's the interesting thing, right? Is that if you lose money in a negative interest rate world, you might have done better than you should have. Yeah. It, it's completely asking. So and normally negative interest rates are usually, you know, something that's associated with, say, deflation. So prices going down. So maybe in nominal terms, you've lost money, but not in real terms. So prices are going down faster than you're losing money on your investment. Right. But that's kind of scary, too, because you could so let's say you run a business and prices go down by five percent. OK. So you paid your employee $100,000 last year, and this year you say, hey, you're getting a raise, buddy. We're going to pay you $98,000 because prices went down by 5%. This is technically a raise. Oh, my there, gosh. Yeah. I feel... Yeah, there's so many. There's so many, just beyond financial reasons, there's so <laughs> many social costs that come with this. And economists call it sticky wages is that businesses would prefer cut people than cut people's wages because it's a horrible thing to try to convince people that this is better for them. Right. This is crazy. I feel like I don't I don't know if it's just like being leftover sick or I I don't know. I feel like I've eaten a substance that is not legal. <laughs> right. Um, no. It, only <laughs> fantasy land, right? Yeah, it's crazy. Um so the big news recently is that the Fed is stress testing for negative interest rates. Um this doesn't necessarily mean that these are going to happen, but it's a scenario that they're kind of just seeing what would happen, right? Right. Right. So, and they're, they're basically saying it, it could be a reality here. And that's the concern is, let's say a recession comes and typically recession comes, what you do, at least for monetary policy, is you start cutting rates. Well, we're already close to zero or at zero. So the only place to go from there is negative. And obviously there's a big concern now. The banks are only bigger. The biggest banks are only bigger. And so what would this do to their income statements and balance sheets if rates actually go negative. It's it's kind of one of those things where they're just trying to be responsible and get ahead of the problem should it become one. Right. So like if we get to the point where this is occurring, there are a lot of other problems happening. Like this is this isn't going to come out of the blue. Like Janet Yellen isn't going to wake up one day and be like, "You know what? Today we're going to have negative interest rates." Like this this is not going to happen. We're, right, right. We're, we're so the things have coming. already gone terribly wrong, especially for the banks because the point at which we have negative interest rates, they're already paying they would already be paying a positive yield likely on deposits and investing into securities at negative interest rates. So they're already losing money. This is, this is so, this is like problem number five that you encounter, right? This right. isn't like, <laughs> oh, you just wake up one day and interest rates are suddenly negative. This is, things have really gone badly. Yeah, and it's kind of doubtful right now anyway. Like the job market is pretty strong. The, the, the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics released its job report. Um, labor market's pretty strong. Unemployment is hovering around ideal levels. Um, some people say that we're going into another recession right now. I don't. I don't know. It's kind of hard yeah, to tell. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the thing too. Is you have to think. You have to put everything in perspective. And one of the things that 
is kind of difficult to consider is that things seem to be fairly rosy in the United States, and we've never had things to be this kind of rosy in the United States and rates to be this low. It's kind of weird. But interest rates are kind of a global issue. So if rates are super low in Japan, they're not going to be very high in the United States because investors are going to say, well, forget Japan. I'll take my money to the United States, right? Right. Um, you know, the other interesting thing about negative interest rates is that they're not even sure if it's legal to have negative interest rates in the United States. Like according to the Federal Reserve Act, which kind of established the, the Federal Reserve Board's authority, they're not sure if they can declare negative interest rates anyway. But it's just kind That's, of one of those things that they're like, yeah, we should, I guess, kind of test for it just in case it does turn out it is legal. That's fascinating. I, I hadn't <laughs> even encountered that. I hadn't even pondered the fact that it might not be legal. That's... <laughs> That's a whole nother slew of issues. Great. So now you pol throw politicians in the mix, too. Fantastic. Because yeah. <laughs> that always goes great with fiscal policy. Um, so what about, what about what would this mean for consumers? If a negative interest rate environment did happen in the United States, which, as we've established, is not hugely likely. I'm not going to say 100% unlikely, because as we'll get to it, forecasting is hard. But what, <laughs> what, what, what would consumers want to do? Well, I think what you... I, I think... It's hard to say. So, this is, we're dealing totally in theoretical territory here. So, you know, all bets are off. But at least so far, if we use foreign countries as an example, I don't think that if we have negative interest rates here in the United States, that consumers will have to deal with a negative interest rate on their bank account. So, although this will be an issue for banks, it'll be an issue for a lot of huge corporate. So, Apple, you know, they have $100 billion, whatever, overseas. They have to deal with the effects of this. But for in individuals, I don't think that it will come to an issue where you have to tolerate the idea of having $10,000 in your bank account today and next year only having $9,900 because of a negative 1% interest rate. I don't think that is within the realm of possibility. At least I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> and if it is, then we're probably both fired anyway. So yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get what's you know, coming to us. Off, we're all, you know, <laughs> I have bigger problems. To deal. Everyone will have bigger problems to deal with than that. And another thing too is that you have to think about is that banks are fairly resilient. That's kind of a joke, but they are fairly <laughs> resilient in the sense that say a Wells Fargo, they make 50% of their income from interest rates, but they also make 50% of it from fees and things like that. So, you know, there's some give and take, right? Right. So after having asked you to guess what will happen and what consumers ought to do if negative interest rates do occur. Um, I found this article on Wall Street Journal about about how forecasters did over the course of 2015. So it provided what the average forecaster guessed would happen for some kind of metric, and then it said what actually happened. Um, and I thought it was kind of funny. So do you, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. So can we start with the big one? We'll start with the big miss first, because this makes me feel better about how my crazy predictions might, you know, might not come to pass and you might actually get a negative rate on your bank account. Uh, so crude oil, December 2015, the average economist put it at $63 a barrel. And the actual as of December 29th was about $38 a barrel, which is just a critically massive miss. But so big. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem big, you know, it's like whatever, 25 bucks, I guess. But people all year, so th these are guesses people make in January of 2015. Right. So people all year were saying there's no way oil's going to get below $40 a barrel. I can't remember the last time that actually even happened. And here we are. Where, what is it now? I think, I think I read somewhere that it's actually cheaper, that the oil is cheaper than the, the container that it is put inside of. The oil barrel right, costs true, more yeah, money. But, 
The oil barrel costs more than the oil that's in it. Yeah. Yes, it's true. <laughs> Which is crazy. Um, so this one is fun. The interest rate, since we were just talking about interest rates, um, the, the average forecaster said that it was going to be at 1.6%. And the actual interest rate on December 16th, 2015 was 0.5%. Bigness. Yeah, people thought that the that the economy was going to rally more, but we had so much global uncertainty plus the oil that it didn't really quite like just get back up to where they thought it was going to. Right. Predicting <laughs> interest rates. Talk about something that's just totally you know just throwing pulling numbers out of a hat. It's not easy to do. And for a long time, actually, anyone listening should go online and Google predictions about where interest rates have, were going to be since the you know since the great recession and almost in every single year the the expect expectation is that rates are going higher and then by the end of the year it's like oh no we missed uh, interest rates are staying low forever apparently <laughs> and then in January I guess bonus time comes back around and all the analysts are happy again so then they predict yet again the interest rates are going higher and they don't <laughs> <laughs> Not, not easy. Yeah, no, it's definitely, it's definitely, I, I don't mean, if you're an analyst out there and you're listening to this and you're like, you know, like, these guys should go walk off a, off a short dock. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're not making fun of you, we promise. We know it's really, really hard. It just, it just sucks and this is just the nature of the job. Like, you're going to be wrong. <laughs> right. No, I mean, I'm sure if a lot of these guys could, they'd just love to write, you know what, I don't know. And yeah. <laughs> that would be the most honest answer, but that's not what you get paid to do, right? That's your job description isn't, hey, just tell us that you don't know because we know you don't. It's, hey, give us a best guess because yeah, just guess. And if you get it right, I'm sure you must get a bonus, right? Right. If you get it right, you totally <laughs> nail it. You get to go on CNBC and talk about how great you were. And then the next year, you get to be proven wrong again. Exactly. It's well, at least someone will buy you drinks that, that first time. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, exactly. So then the, the Fed funds rate, uh, average forecast was 0.89, and the actual, as of December 2015, was 0.375%. Yeah. Um, and the Fed funds rate, for our listeners who don't know, is the um, rate at which the Fed will give these very short overnight loans to banks. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is basically yelling. Yeah, right. right. So And the, the higher they are, the more expensive it is for banks to borrow money from the central banking agency. So, right. Yeah. Um, however, unemployment, they got pretty much on the nose. Right. Unemployment, they almost nailed it. Uh, let's see. They said average forecast 5.2% and actual, as of November at least, was 5%. I think we're below 5% now. I looked it up. We're like barely, barely below 5% if yeah. for, for 2016. But in December of 2015, it was 5% exactly. Nailed it. They nailed it. Good job, guys. Whoever picked that one, really good job. Um, and then for wage growth, which is average hourly wages, um, the percent change over last year, um, they had forecast 2.6%, and the actual for December 2015 was 2.3%. Yeah, I, you know, it's not so, it's not so surprising actually. The more I thought about that a little little bit, and if you get the if you get the unemployment rate right, you're probably going to nail wage growth, right? Because if that's true, unemployment's low, you expect wage growth of you know X percent. Yeah, so they were pretty good at, at a lot of the jobs metrics in general. Right. Yeah. Luckily, that's kind of been a thing where you can kind of just say well, unemployment will go a little higher, wages might go a little higher, because th- there's a lot of industries actually right now that are really hurting from higher higher labor costs. 
Yeah. Which is, I guess, good if you're a worker, right? Not so great if you're an investor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, standards of living, that's nice. I, I, I don't miss those minimum wage days. Um, <laughs> no. Yeah, and I was in high school and I had parents supporting me, so I can't even imagine what it would be like. Right. Yeah. Right. No, I, in high school, I worked at a golf course for all of about a month before I was promptly fired and uh, making minimum wage for that month was not fun. Yeah. I guess oh. I made minimum wage through most of college, too. Um, oh, and back then, back then it was low. Back then it was like five dollars and twenty five cents or something like that. Right. Yeah. No. Back. Yeah. Back when I was in college, it would have been something like that. I own my own business in college, so I was probably making minimum wage though because I was working way too much. <laughs> um, and then the last one we have for you guys is the real GDP. Um, forecast was three percent, and then I went and looked it up, and the actual one was two percent. Which not too bad. I mean. That's an that's that's kind of hard one to nail because if you get the oil price wrong, you're gonna miss that. Yeah. So, so all I'm, things considered, it wasn't a bad guess. No, it wasn't really. I mean, you know, you could throw darts probably, and as long as you had a number that was between one and four percent, you might might be pretty close. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Job advice from Jordan Wathen for all the forecasters yeah, there you go. out there. <laughs> Let me teach you how to do an analyst job. Just throw darts at numbers. It's fantastic. <laughs> Okay, everyone. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Um, as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. Thank you for that guy who tweeted me and told me I used too many filler words. I hope I used fewer this week. Thanks, everyone, and have a great week. Bye.